0: Hi everyone. Welcome to Meet the Rockadopolis. I'm Like Rockadopolis. And I'm Lance Rockadopolis. And today we're going to talk about the 1960s. But first, a shout out to the 90s rave band, Lords of Acid, for both the title and the idea of this episode. And here's a shout out to Johannesburg, South Africa.
1: Hi, Mistress Baton. <laughs> <laughs> we got our jam pack from her. She lives in that area.
0: And hi to Watkin Tudor Jones. We know you're out there somewhere. So, this episode is about sex in the 1960s, which was a decade of social and cultural turmoil in the United States and other parts of the world. Today, we'll touch on some of the philosophical, sociological, spiritual, and scientific rhetoric around free love in the 60s and how that rhetoric was deployed at cultural and individual levels. But this episode will be different from the others because we're going to focus our discussion largely on one person who experienced the 60s really to the fullest. And that person was my mother, who was very much involved in many of the various shenanigans of that time period, but many of her experiences tended to be on the extreme end of the spectrum. And when she reminisced about those experiences, her memories were almost entirely positive, though she also did take some very serious risks and did end up getting in some fairly serious trouble on a few occasions. So while she did all of the hippie stuff, mind-active drug use, spiritual quests, reproductive rights, in a manner of speaking, and to a limited degree political activism, a very limited degree, her unique experiences in those areas do not quite fit the standard white middle-class American baby boomer narrative of that period. So we'll divide the discussion into four interconnected trends that touched the lives of many baby boomers in the 60s, and we'll look at them through alternately the lenses of sexual rhetoric and my mother's personal experiences— And I do want to just give you a warning. There are parts of this episode that are not for the squeamish. And we're really sort of nudging the envelope in our discussion of STIs. So if you can't handle just a little bit of gross (laughs) talk, maybe this episode isn't for you.
1: Yeah, when I think of the 60s, I think of free love, The sexual revolution of the 1960s in the United States was a social and cultural movement that promoted liberal attitudes towards sex and created a profound shift in how people thought about sex. The term sexual revolution has a lot to it. It was highly political in that it was the start of the gay rights and women's liberation In the 60s, women gained more control of their bodies and sexuality. In 1960, the Food and Drug Administration approved the first oral contraceptive, Enovid, and within two years of its initial distribution, 1.2 million American women were using the pill. The impact of the pill on the women's rights movement was profound. For one, women could participate in society more fully because... If they were having sex, they were not getting pregnant, and they could hold a job longer term. But having the pill did not prevent people from having STIs. And, of course, there's shame and stigma and embarrassment associated with even getting tested for an STI. The primary STIs that people were concerned about in the 60s included syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, all caused by bacteria and herpes, which is a virus. Chlamydia is interesting because it spread widely during the 1960s and it was only recognized as an STI in the 1970s.
0: Okay, so my mother was very much into free love. She was extremely sex positive. Most of her sex positivity took place in L.A., and in Boulder, Colorado, where she spent the majority of her adult life. I remember in the 80s, we'd be strolling the Boulder Mall, and inevitably she'd run into someone who she'd had sex with maybe 15 years earlier. And I know this because she'd tell me that she had had sex with that guy, whichever it was, but she'd sit in a kind of a giggly schoolgirl way, like, oh, I had sex with that guy.
1: (laughs) Sort of proud of that fact.
0: Yeah, and I was probably I think I would have been like between the age of 11 and maybe 14 at that time. Mm. But, you know, was that quote-unquote inappropriate for her to do? Of course. And I think it's possible that my parents' very open discussions of sex may have been a part of what made me a sexual deviant and if so, thanks very much, Mom up in heaven, and Dad, we won't talk about it. But I think I must have inherited a little bit of her bragging about exploits, because I remember taking Lance here on a sex tour of the city of Boulder. Just when when was this, like within a few months of us right. getting together? It was
1: really early in our relationship, and um, that was kind of impressive the way you did it, like... I had sex in that parking lot. Oh, there's a guy over there in that apartment that I had sex with.
0: Right. I made him drive around to all of the different places where I had had sex in Boulders, maybe a dozen or so places um, with different people. But, I mean, that was over several decades, really. Well,
1: it seemed more impressive being piled all at once.
0: So, anyway, of course, sex can often lead to pregnancy as well as STIs, And it appears that my mother was not actually very interested in the birth control pill. She actually preferred the quote-unquote rhythm method, which is something that Catholic women are encouraged to do, which is to just chart their menstrual cycle and only have sex when they don't believe that they're fertile based on that charting. So she did use that, and over time she ended up having at least three abortions that I know of, and four children that I know of, two of which she gave up for adoption. So she wasn't that into contraception, apparently. And condom use was apparently not happening either because I have memories of her talking about all of the STIs that she had acquired in the 60s. So from her various stories... I gathered that she had multiple infections of gonorrhea, specifically, a.k.a. the clap or the drip, and chlamydia, known as the clam or the gooey stuff. But perhaps the most disturbing STI she talked about was less of an infection and more of an infestation of the crab louse, or crabs for short. And the crab louse is just a type of Mm -hmm. louse that is happy where you have, like, really thick hair. It can happen in beards, it can happen in armpits, and then, of course, it can happen in the pelvic area of both human sexes. And the thing is, and this is true of the Lords of Acid song as well, she wasn't shy about talking about how nice it was to have her crab lice friends (laughs) Hanging out with her down in her nether regions. Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
1: That's really nasty. It
0: wasn't like she was saying those things to me, but she had no problem saying those things to her friends around me.
1: Like, in what context would it come up?
0: I'm pretty sure that wasn't like a a one-to-one mother-daughter talk. Like, it wasn't... Now, if you get crab lice, just remember that it might make you feel really, really good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she said it made her feel good?
0: Well, what she said was that they were her friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> but in the song, right, in the Lords of Acid song, they're waxing poetic about the wonders of the crab louse mm-hmm. and how it makes them come. But that's Lords <laughs> of Acid for you. Right. So I'll continue on our discussion of the 60s by talking about the sexiness of political activism. In an earlier episode of this podcast, we talked about the critical theorist Herbert Marcuse, who coined the term surplus repression to describe the idea that capitalism was designed to keep people generating more wealth for people in power. Marcusa saw capitalism as a method of controlling people's eros, their life force, and that includes their sexuality, and he advocated for people to take back that erotic energy for their own creative purposes, which itself was a political act. But he also advocated for using the life force, using eroticism for political activism to improve social conditions in general. And he even suggested that erotic energy should be diverted from individual sex acts and directed toward other bigger social and cultural projects. He thought that the social dictates of the heterosexual nuclear family in the 1950s was a way of controlling erotic energy and directing it toward capitalism. And so the typical 1950s nuclear family was designed to promote capitalism and keep any revolutionary impulses under control.
1: How does that square with what we talked about last time, about how the repression of the 1950s was actually very sexy, at least to us?
0: But we also talked about how sexual repression... Just stores up sexual energy. Mm-hmm. Sexual repression is a really good way of making someone constantly think about sex. Right. So, my mother was never very politically active, but she could get very riled up about political issues when the mood struck her. For example, she really, really hated Reagan, but she was also a compassionate person and a very passionate person. But she didn't pay attention to politics very much, and she was never an activist. So in 1969, she and my dad and one of their friends in California lived about a half a block from Venice Beach. And on April 20th, 1969, there was the Venice Free Press Music Festival. And as some of our listeners might already know, 1969 was a huge year for music festivals. There was Woodstock, the notorious Altamont Festival in which four people died, the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival, etc. The Venice Free Press Festival is not a famous one. There's very little information about it online, but there's some. And we're going to post a picture of the brutality that took place there. Because at some point during the concert, the crowd started spilling into people's yards and businesses that were on the boardwalk at that time. And the LAPD showed up and, you guessed it, just started beating the shit out of everyone. (laughs) (laughs) They never do that.
1: It sounds like they're stormtroopers or something from Star Wars coming in and just start beating people (laughs) or shooting people.
0: That was something that they seemed to have enjoyed very much. And in fact, that goes back to the 40s. They started these riots. They started police riots against peaceable legal protesters. So my parents were both at the festival, and at the first sign of trouble, they took off and ran up to the second-story apartment where they were watching the scene out their window. And they saw a cop catch a young guy who was fleeing slammed him against my parents fence and commenced to beat the shit out of him and so at that point my mother immediately ran out of their apartment and grabbed the cop by the back of his jacket and yelled look at what you're doing look at what you're doing and the cop turned to her and smiled and said you ain't seen nothing yet
1: that took balls i mean To interfere with the police activity.
0: (laughs) And that's characteristic of her, too. So she didn't have a lot of political ideology going on in her life, but she could definitely tell the misuse of power Mm -hmm. when she saw it. Of course, my dad ran after her and had to drag her back into their house.
1: The other thing that I think of when I think of the 60s is... Obviously, the increase in and acceptance of especially recreational drug use in in the 1960s. But beginning in the 30s up to the 60s, there was a big push by the federal government to demonize drugs. Drugs in the 60s became more fashionable and mainstream, especially marijuana. It started to become associated with social protest, and so the stigma against it declined. In addition to marijuana, there were other more, quote, hardcore drugs that became more fashionable, including quaaludes, heroin, mescaline, and LSD. All these were glamorized by musicians, writers, and other artists. And having these artistic types, saying that it can help expand your mind and stating that it can be a very spiritual experience also made it very attractive. Psychedelics were advocated by writers like Timothy Leary, Aldous Huxley, Arthur Kostler, and Alan Watts. There is evidence of the ability of psychedelics, especially to induce spiritually significant experiences. There was the Marsh Chapel experiment. And this was an experiment conducted by Harvard researchers that got Timothy Leary kicked out of Harvard because he was the supervisor of the experiment. Basically, the controversial nature of the research was also problematic. And that particular experiment was done with psilocybin or magic mushrooms. What did your mom think about drugs?
0: Well, she loved smoking pot, and she did take a lot of acid in the 60s as well as some other psychedelics, which we will talk about in our next section of this episode. But also, somewhere between 1965 and 1968, she was also involved in the drug trade. And by drug trade, I don't just mean selling pot to her friends. First, she sold heroin and meth In her early 20s, she acquired a boyfriend who was not a good person, a pretty dangerous guy, and he took her to Mexico for the purpose of moving heroin and meth back and forth across the U.S.-Mexico border, and they did that for a few months until he... A couple of times he seems to have tried to kill her. He got her heavily dosed up on crystal meth and then locked her in their apartment. And then eventually she got away from him when he attempted to strangle her to death. Hmm. And, uh, and she played dead and slumped over and he walked away.
1: This is absolutely crazy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't the end of her drug trafficking story. After she got away from this guy, she ended up in Boulder and she met a wonderful boyfriend there and had her, I believe, her third child with him. But with drug dealer number two, they were crossing back and forth over the U.S.-Mexico border really just to sell pot and acid. So it was a little bit of a step up ethically. And she was very happy with him as a boyfriend and, you know, but it was the 60s and people weren't into getting married at that point, I guess. And then she met my dad, who was not that into drugs. He smoked pot, but he was not trying to sell drugs. He was uh, Mm. too busy reading poetry.
1: From what you've told me about your mom, it seems like she's a very spiritual person. And in addition to all the unrest and social protests of the 1960s, it was also a time of spiritual exploration, People were searching for meaning beyond the physical world. And to me, this search was the driving force that gave impetus to all the protests, the civil rights movement, Mm. the rise of feminism, gay rights, and environmentalism.
0: Wait, you're saying that you tie all of those, all of that? I think so, yeah. You think that was like God, like help? Because (laughs) a lot of them certainly did. Right. So I worked for a woman. This was in Arcata, California. I went to Humboldt State for undergrad And I worked for a woman who had like a a little cafe and ice cream store in a very hippie town, Arcata. And she told me that she believed that the 1960s happened as some kind of gift from God or some spiritual source in order to heal World War II, what what people were experiencing from World War II. That's
1: interesting kind of explains why people were reaching out for other religious traditions, especially the Eastern religions, yoga, meditation, and Buddhism became much more popular. Most famously, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi became the favorite guru of the Beatles. He was the first to popularize transcendental meditation. One of my favorite teachers of Eastern philosophy was the aforementioned Alan Watts. He was a writer and a speaker and frequently on California radio, interpreting and popularizing Japanese, Christian, and Indian traditions. There's also Carlos Castaneda, who wrote books in the late 1960s and early 70s while he was studying anthropology at UCLA. Castaneda describes his experiences with the use of peyote and other hallucinogens in his books. Peyote is a small button-shaped cactus native in the southern parts of the United States and Mexico, with mescaline being the active psychotropic component. Its hallucinogenic effects are comparable to those of LSD and psilocybin. Castaneda speaks of his encounters with mescalito, teaching spirit inhabiting all peyote plants. It's worth noting that Castaneda's writings have always been controversial among anthropologists. Some people believe that he fabricated the whole story, but it is undeniable that he had a huge influence in Western spirituality. Those books popularized shamanism and exploring consciousness and what it means and He influenced, basically, the whole New Age movement. His accounts challenged the dominant Western worldview by presenting a different perspective on reality consciousness and encouraged his readers to do explorations on their own as well.
0: He's an interesting figure. There's a lot of indignation all over ethnic studies and anthropology about his quote-unquote research In fact, that term mescalito did not exist before he wrote his book. He created that name to just describe the general spirituality around peyote. Both of my parents used peyote in the 60s. I've never used peyote. I think that I would want to. I rarely use any kind of recreational drugs. It's been years and years, but peyote is one that I might want to try sometime. I know that you want to try...
1: Some, uh, just
0: just strictly for masochistic purposes, it sounds like, but my parents did talk a lot about their psychedelic experiences. My dad has teased me for years about telling me how he saw God on taking acid and that he would wait until like he's on his deathbed because he smoked so much pot. I think he probably forgot that he said all of that. But the next time I see him in person, I'll ask him. My mother had no problem, though, of course, talking about (laughs) all of the psychedelics and how the Virgin Mary appeared to her and she became a nun and all of this stuff. (laughs) And after the 60s, in the mid-70s, she did embrace Sufism and got herself on a more steady spiritual path that lasted for 30 years. So anyway, there are two stories that I've heard about peyote, and about the god Mescalito. So the first one actually comes from my mom's Alcoholics Anonymous sponsor, who she met when she was living up in Washington. Her sponsor was really a wonderful, kind, big, bullish type of woman, hardworking, and had been hard drinking, hard drugging for a lot of her life until Mm. she got sober. So we'll call her Kathy. (laughs) So this was long before she got sober. It was in a coastal town in Washington when she was doing a lot of drugging and drinking. So she got a hold of some mescaline pills. And she and her husband, who is also heavy alcoholic, went to the main tavern of this little fishing village. And they both had with them two hits of mescaline. And so they were sitting there drinking beer. And they took the first hit and nothing happened. So they waited like half hour, hour, nothing happened. Then they both took the second hit, kept drinking beer, nothing happened. So after two or three hours at the tavern, they go home and they go to bed. At about one o'clock in the morning, Kathy wakes up, her husband's out, completely Mm -hmm. out. She wakes up, And she sees a skeletal hand coming around the door and opening up the door of her bedroom. And there is a full-on Grim Reaper skeleton standing in the door looking at her. And so she immediately pulls the cover over her head, and she's very, very scared. About 20 minutes later, she peeks out, and there he still is, standing (laughs) in the door... She pulls the cover back over her head. An hour later, peeks out, still there. She's obviously terrified. So she cowers in her bed, just peeking out to see if he's still there. A little before dawn, she peeks out from under the covers, and he speaks to her and says, you wanted to meet me. (laughs) And she's shaking, and then he turns around and walks away. So... She waits another hour in her bed. She gets up, goes outside on her beautiful property, all all these beautiful pine trees, and it's all very lush. And she's walking along the dirt road, and a buck and a doe and a fawn are crossing the road. They stop in the middle of the road. She walks up to them, and she puts out her hand, and the buck licks her hand. Oh, and she took that as a sign that it was, it was okay, that she was forgiven for her <laughs> inappropriate use of peyote. So my mom has a different story about the god Mescalito. So this was in Boulder, and she was really, again, she was a very sexual person. She was also a very loving person and just a very open-minded person. She decided to go for a walk in the foothills. This was Mount Sinitas. It is one of the guardians of the Flatirons in Boulder. So she climbs up Mount Sinaitis, and then she's going west to a little bit of the back hills and takes off all of her clothes, right? So I'm going to do this naked. And so she's walking along naked, beautiful, tall, model-like woman. And, you know, after walking for a few minutes, she spies a young Indian man who's peeking at her from behind a rock. So she pretends like she doesn't see him and just walks right by him on the trail. And then after a few hundred feet, she senses that he's following her. So she turns around and he comes up to her and they commence to fuck. (laughs) Right. And so they spend the rest of the afternoon wandering around the foothills and fucking and just having a lovely time. And then he walks away and disappears. So I would say that if the spiritual world is real, she is highly favored by it. So this concludes our episode on the 1960s. Our next episode will be on the sleazy 1970s. Till then, have a great week.
1: Mind your labia, you're never out of danger.
0: Mind your labia. Keep them out of danger. Yeah.
1: If you're gonna go to bed with a stranger, who just might be hidden in his big area, it's a crab louse that's gonna get ya. <laughs>